Please have a seat if you care to. If you need to stand and uh, move around to stay warm, we'll understand. <laughs> I think this is the first time in nearly 40 years of preaching that I've preached with a hat on, maybe other than a graveside service, but if it's this cold and you're bald, you understand, right? <laughs> What do you do when you're going through seasons of stress and confusion? Though this may be a sensitive question to ask, it seems very appropriate right now, doesn't it? We're going through a season where we are faced not only with personal and family stresses and confusion, but even as a nation. We are going through particular times right now where we don't know what's going to happen. There's a spike in COVID cases right now in our nation, in our state. Ten days from now, we will have one of the most polarizing elections in our country that even those of us that are older can remember. So how do you handle seasons of stress and confusion? You know, most of us either deliberately or maybe even unconsciously resort to what psychologists call coping mechanisms. When we're feeling stressed, we're feeling confused, the tendency is to look for some way to cope with it. Some of these coping mechanisms are unhealthy in anyone's estimation. I don't think anybody would say, yeah, that's a healthy thing to do. That's a healthy coping mechanism. Maybe binging on junk food or um, possibly drinking too much or looking at pornography or taking drugs or sleeping all the time. In anyone's estimation, we would say that's not a healthy coping mechanism. But interestingly, other people give themselves over to coping mechanisms that might look virtuous on the surface, but when you get under the surface and you try to evaluate what motivated that, it's actually not healthy at all. You know, some people will work out for hours in the gym whenever they're feeling stressed. They work out way more than they need to to be healthy. Some people just pour themselves into their vocation, their job, working many more hours than they actually need to. And although it's probably a minority of us, some people just incessantly clean their houses. <laughs> they're coping mechanisms when we feel stressed, when we feel confused. I'm not going to ask you to answer this now loud, but what's coming to your mind right now? Do you see any patterns in your life of ways you try to cope when you feel stressed, when you feel confused? We've been studying the book of Daniel together for the last couple of months, and the first six chapters of Daniel are narratives. They're stories. There's stories about Daniel, and there's a little bit there about his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, better known as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And we read these stories of these Hebrew men who were living as exiles. As teenagers, probably, they had been taken away from their homes, their families, and they were made to live in a place that was not their home. And there were stresses and confusions of living in a foreign land and trying to learn how to cope with those stresses while at the same time remaining faithful to the true God of Israel. Now we read these stories in the Bible sometimes and um, we're so used to seeing fictional movies and reading fictional books that we read these stories in Daniel and, and they seem somehow unreal to us. Really? A fiery furnace? A lion's den? a statue that you have to bow down to, but it's good for us here at CCC as we're going through the study of Daniel to stop and remember these were real people. These were real people. People like you and me. As you read that first half of the book of Daniel, do you ever stop and wonder, how did they do that? How did they remain faithful to the true God of Israel while living under that kind of stress, that kind of confusion, sometimes at the risk of their lives, and yet remaining faithful to God, not only day after day, not only week after week, not only month after month, but year after year, and yes, decade after decade. 
How did they do that? Please join me in the book of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is considered by many people to be one of the most complex, confusing, and yes, controverted chapters in the whole Bible. If you're asking, why are you saying that, Pastor Larry? Daniel chapter 9 is the chapter in the Bible that talks about Daniel's 70 weeks. There have been many books on prophecy written about the last few verses of Daniel 9. There have been plenty of prophecy conferences in times past on just three verses from Daniel chapter 9. And usually the preacher or the writer includes time charts. Uh, those of us that are older remember the popularity of prophecy conferences. They're still out there. They're just not as popular as they used to be. People live much more in the immediate these days. But usually if a man is writing a book on prophecy, particularly about chapter 9 of Daniel, or he's teaching at a conference on Daniel chapter 9, he's almost always accompanied by charts, time charts. And as I was preparing the sermon to feed you God's word this week, it struck me how providential, how providential that the Lord had us in Daniel 9 outside. <laughs> we couldn't have charts if we wanted to. <laughs> and that's a blessing. And as I was meditating on God's providence, as we got to chapter 9 on this last Sunday of being outside, what came to my mind was this. Maybe the Lord wants us to focus more on our hearts than our charts. We'll let that jet go by. <laughs> you know you live in a small town when people look up when a jet goes by, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe the Lord wants us to focus on our hearts more than our charts. Having lived with stress as an exile in a hostile culture for many years, what is Daniel doing as we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 9? What is he doing? Do you have your Bible open there? Are your fingers warm enough to turn in your Bible or look at your app on your phone? What's he doing? Look at the first two verses of Daniel 9. It said, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So you're looking at Daniel, he's an old man now. If you're trying to picture, if you're trying to picture in your mind what you're reading in Daniel 9, Daniel is now an old man, most likely in his 80s, maybe even approaching 90 years old, and he's still faithful to God. And so living under this stress, now, now in a whole nother uh, emperor's realm, He's still being faithful to God. And so in these times of stress, what's he doing? He's reading the Bible. He's reading the Bible he had. Isn't it wonderful to see that there? What is he reading? He tells us in Daniel chapter 9 that he's reading from the book of Jeremiah. Now, the Hebrews didn't have numeration to their Bibles, but we have it. And so I can tell you, pretty sure what passages Daniel was probably reading in his book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 24 says this, and even if you're too cold to open your Bible, listen carefully, I'll read it to you. This is Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making their land an everlasting waste. And then maybe you read from Jeremiah 29, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. If I were to read the next verse, you would say, oh, I've heard that verse. Did you know the context? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me 
when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You know, Jeremiah was not an old book yet. Uh, Jeremiah would have written his prophecy a little more than a generation before this. And yet, isn't it fascinating that Daniel not only has access to a copy, but he was able to read it and to enjoy it and call it the Word of God. He already recognized that the prophecy of Jeremiah was the Word of God. And he reads this, and what does he read? He reads about God's promise that after 70 years of exile, God would punish the Babylonian captors and send his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, back to the promised land. Now we know from what Daniel says in verse 13, I know we didn't read that yet, but if you let your eyes drift down to verse 13, he says, as it is written in the law of Moses. And so Daniel had also a copy accessible to him of the books of Moses. What are the books of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There are five. And so if you're not familiar with this, if you hear the word Pentateuch, that means five. Uh, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible, which are written by the Holy Spirit through Moses. So Daniel was a man of the Bible. He knew the book of Jeremiah. He also had access to the books of Moses. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if Daniel was very familiar with Leviticus chapter 26, where God says almost 900 years before, he said, I will scatter you among the nations. Maybe he was also familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 30, when God says, back in Moses' day, when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord, your God, will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. You see, 900 years before, when God established the covenant through Moses, Daniel would have been under that covenant, that agreement between God and his people. There were stipulations under the Mosaic Covenant, and I'm going to summarize, I'm not quoting the Bible here, but I'm going to summarize that in the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, there were stipulations. God tells the people of Israel, some of whom were converted and some of whom were not. He tells the people under that covenant, if you will obey me, if you will stay faithful to me, I will stay faithful to you. And I will bless you and keep you in the land of promise that I'm taking you to. But if you disobey me, if you disregard me, if you turn your back on me, if you worship idols, I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to send you into exile until you turn, repent, turn back to me. <coughs> and then in my grace, because of my promise to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will keep my promise to your ancestors, and I will bring my people back to the land. Here's Daniel, having lived in exile for most of his life. He's an old man. And yet, even though he'd lived in exile since his high school years, let's say, <clears throat> he knew the Word of God. He was a man of the Bible. He knew the God who made promises. He knew the promises of God. And he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and you can almost see him sitting there with his copy and thinking, 70 years? Well, I've been here for almost 70 years. The time must be about up. That God said first, first, he would destroy the king of Babylon. Do you remember what happened not long before this? Remember that night that Daniel was called into that party and Belshazzar the king was throwing a party and he had his guests drinking to their drunken state out of the the sanctified cups the dedicated cups from the temple in Jerusalem that these instruments from the very temple of God had been taken as as booty by the Babylonians and now he breaks them out and by very the very drinking of the wine out of those goblets he was saying ha the God of Israel is nothing his stuff is nothing to us. And while we're having this party, do you remember? A hand appeared on the wall. 
many, many tekel ufarsin. You've been fade, you've been weighed in the scales, Belshazzar, and you're lacking. And tonight, your life will be required of you. Daniel was the one who gave the interpretation. When Daniel read the prophecy of Jeremiah, he says, first of all, God's going to bring down the king of Babylon. Daniel was there that night. But there's a second part to the promise of God, that after 70 years, not only will the king of Babylon be brought down, but the people of God will be restored to the land. And here's old Daniel, still, still faithful to God, and he reads that. And so he says, oh, look at the promises of God. You know, the time must be about up, and even though he's an old man, and he might not be among those who return to the land, what's on his heart? What does Daniel do having read the word of God? What's he do next? Look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so here's Daniel having been exposed to the word of God, and his response is to talk to the God of the word. And so he hears the word of God, he reads the word of God, and he sees the promises of this God and he says yes I want to talk to him about this and so he pours out his heart he pours out his heart before God he reads the Bible and then he prays do you see how he addresses God let's go ahead and read verses 4 through 15 it says I pray to the Lord my God and made confession saying O Lord the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments we have sinned and done wrong. By the way, as we, I read this, notice how often Daniel uses uh, dualism, how often he, he repeats a word, gives it a synonym. We, when we write in our day, we just hit the italics or the bold. Uh, what they often did was they would repeat things, maybe use a different word, but it, this is so emphatic. He says, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. It is, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of our, the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, Yahweh, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. David talks to God with such respect and with such passion, doesn't he? He refers to God as the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God. God, you are faithful in all you've done. He speaks with reverence to God. He also speaks with passion. This man is going through times of fasting, isn't he? He's, he's humbling himself before God, acknowledging God's greatness. Did you notice how he keeps 
referencing, he keeps repeating the sins of his people, the sins of God's covenant people. I don't know if you are tracking, but let me just go back and very quickly read some of these just to show you how focused Daniel is on confessing sin. He says, I pray to the Lord my God, verse 4, I pray to the Lord my God and made confession. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame because we've sinned against you. Verse nine, we have rebelled. Verse 10, we have not obeyed. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law, turned aside, refusing to obey. Verse 13, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Then you get to verse 14 and it says, we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Why is David spending so much time confessing sin? There's such a contrast here, isn't there? He, he speaks of God in such high terms. God, you are holy. We are unholy. God, you are faithful. We are faithless. You're a covenant-keeping God. We're covenant-breaking people. You know, the, this prayer is it's one of the longest prayers in the Bible, by the way, but this prayer seems so foreign to our ears, doesn't it? I mean, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this very personally. How often do I confess sin when I pray? And when I do, what does it sound like? Daniel makes no excuses. He doesn't say, well, God, it was hard on us, and... And you know, it was hard to resist all the temptation by these pagan idols around us. And God, you know, we tried our best. I mean, there's none of that. <coughs> there's no excuse making. There's no minimizing. He's saying, God, you sent your people, you sent us into exile because that's exactly what we deserved. And his confession is very God-centered. You know, sometimes even when we confess our sins and our failures, we, we focus on ourselves. We, you know, it's like, Lord, I'm so miserable. Life's so hard. I mean, you know, I've been caught up in the sin of my life just so hard. God, please come get me out of this mess. God, please come get me out of my misery. You know, and we're focused on ourselves as if the main reason we would even bring up our sin is to point out to God how miserable we are. And we are miserable when we sin. And yet, it's fascinating, isn't it, when you listen to David's confession of sin here, that he's focusing on God. He's saying, God, we've offended you. We've, we've brought shame to your name. We're the people who bear your name, and yet we've brought shame on your name. And, and Daniel is so focused here on, on not only confessing sin, but showing how much that affects God. That it's very God-focused, isn't it? Friends, when we confess our sin, let's not minimize our sin by making excuses or just talking about our own misery. When we minimize our sin, you know what we tend to do? We minimize our need for God's grace. And if we say, well, it was no big sin, you know, that, was no, that was no big sin, that's not, that not the biggest sin as what some people do. Whenever we minimize our sin, we're minimizing our need for grace. And yet, we need God's grace, don't we? we? We need the grace of God in our lives. So why would we minimize our sin? Little sins require little grace. But our sins are, are great, and we are in need of great grace, don't we? So Daniel spends so much of his time showing reverence to God and confessing not just his own sin, but the sins of his people. And I think even as we in this covenant, we're not under that covenant, we're under the new covenant, but as we're under the new covenant, we are of the people of God, we are of the church. And are we willing to speak up before the throne of God, confessing not only our own personal sins, but even what we see in the church of God today? So what does, what does Daniel pray for? He's addressed God with reverence and humility. He's confessed sin repeatedly, passionately. What's his request? What's he asking God for? Let's read verses 16 through 19. 
Daniel 9, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, (coughs) but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel realizes that the first part of God's promise through Jeremiah was fulfilled. And now he's asking God, come finish your promise. Come finish your promise. God, do what you said you were going to do. You know, sometimes over my years of pastoral ministry, people have asked me, if, in a challenging way usually, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, and I certainly do, then why do you pray? If you believe that God works out all his holy will, why bother to pray? It's just going to happen anyway. My friends, that's what the heart of the people of God is it. When we see the promises of God in the Bible, the promises of our, our great and glorious God, our sovereign God, that moves us to pray. He uses our prayers even in the outworking of his plans. And he wants us to come and acknowledge that. And to say, oh, sovereign Father, come and do your holy will. Come and carry out your promises even in our day. And Daniel prayed that way. This was a prayer of faith, friends. Now, sadly, there are people that assume somehow that we should look in to find out if we have faith. You know, uh, boy, I sure hope I got enough. I sure hope I have enough faith inside of me. And if I can just stir up enough spiritual gumption, you know, if I can just stir up enough belief, then somehow God will act. Friends, we don't look in to find faith. We look up to find faith. We look up at the God who has revealed his will to us. We look up to the God who is sovereign over the universe. And we look up and in great faith we say, God, we see how you've revealed yourself. We see your character. We've listened to your promises. And we believe you. And so now, God, we're asking, come and do your will. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Come and do your work among us. And in Daniel's day, he wanted the restoration of his people to the promised land. And he pleaded with God, not on his own worthiness, not on the worthiness of the people around him, but on the worthiness of God himself. There are great lessons here for our prayer, isn't there? Great lessons to knowing how to pray Daniel prayed based on the greatness of God. Verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God. He prayed based on the grace of God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We all struggle with prayer sometimes, and some of us struggle with prayer regularly, wondering, what's the point? What's the point? And so often, we look around us and we see the desperation of our own hearts. We see our own weakness, our own failures. We see people around us who seem so hardened against God. And we think, what's the point? Nothing's going to happen. And right now, as I look at you and realize that many of our church members are watching online, You probably have someone in your life, you probably have someone in your life, a family member, a parent, a sibling, a child, a grandchild, who seems so hardened toward the gospel, a friend that you weep for because of their hardness against Christ. And you think, oh, I can't ever picture that person coming to Christ. Or maybe you have a situation in your life that looks hopeless, and you think nothing's going to change. 
Oh, we have so much to learn here from the prayer of this godly man, Daniel. That he went before the throne of God, leaning, leaning heavily upon the greatness and the grace of the God of heaven. And he asked boldly for God, come and listen to your servants' prayers. Answer our prayers. Keep your promise, God. Restore your people. And I want to encourage you who are desperately aching for change in that loved one or in that situation, that we pray to a God who is both breathtakingly great and soul-stirring gracious, that we come to him with big prayers. Don't dishonor God by only coming with small prayers. The man who was most well known for writing Amazing Grace, John Newton, wrote other hymns. And one of my favorites of Newton's has a line that I want you to remember. Maybe memorize it with me right now. I'll just give you one line from that great hymn. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. I'll say it again. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. And the king we pray to, my friends, is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It might help you as it helps me to picture as I pray that I'm coming into the throne room of the king of heaven. And by the grace found in Jesus Christ, he allows me to call him Abba. The king is my father, and my father is the king. And he says, bring me the big ones, son. Bring me, bring me the big requests. So even as Daniel was praying, praying big prayers to the God of the universe, we can learn from this man's example. And that most desperate prayer in your heart that you hesitate to pray, bring it to the king. God answers Daniel in ways that must have taken his breath away. Let's look at uh, Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 20. It says, while I, was while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I, was, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at that time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Oh, do you hear that? Do you see the God behind his messenger, the angel Gabriel? Sometimes God answers our prayers over time. Sometimes we wait to see the answers to our prayers. In this case, Daniel wasn't even done praying. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He's praying. And Gabriel shows up. <laughs> he says he flew swiftly. And he says, Daniel, while you were still praying, God sent out a word. Can you imagine the throne of heaven? God saying, Gabriel, get down there. I reassure my son that I'm not only about to answer his prayers, but I'm going to answer his prayers in ways he hasn't even imagined. And Gabriel shows up and he says, God wants you to understand. And then, don't you just want to park for a while in verse 23? Don't you just want to park there for a while? That Gabriel says, Daniel, you're so loved. You're, you're so loved. And sometimes... We wonder as Christians, does God love me? When we're going through hard times, even as Daniel was going through hard times, we wonder, does God love me? Friends, 
You know, no matter what your life circumstances, you have a monument to God's love that never wavers, never fades. The cross of Jesus Christ. And when you and I find our hearts shaken, our, our minds doubting the love of God, we run to the cross. We run to the cross. And there in the shadow of the cross, we remember, oh, how he loves you and me. Gabriel says, oh, Daniel, you are so loved. Hang on, Daniel. I'm about to show you an answer to your prayers that you hadn't even prayed yet. I'm going to show you an answer to your prayers that is greater than anything you ever imagined. God has a bigger goal. Now we're going to read those controverted verses, and I'll do my best to give you what I think is the heart of them. Verse 24, the rest of the chapter. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy thing or a most holy one. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and, and in the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week I shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. <clears throat> What's Daniel asking for? He's asking for the restoration of the exiles back to the homeland, back to the promised land of of. Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. And God tells Daniel through the messenger, Gabriel, I'm going to do something bigger than that, Daniel. Yeah, the people are going home, but I'm going to do something bigger than you ever imagined. And he points Daniel's eyes higher, and he points Daniel's eyes farther. You see... For the people of Israel, the exiles, to go back to Jerusalem, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? That would be a good thing. We're going home. After all these years, we're going home. And yet, as I mentioned just briefly a while ago, many of the people under the Mosaic Covenant were not converted. Some were, but not all of them. The New Covenant, everyone has to be converted. That's how you get into that covenant. But in the Old Covenant, some of the people weren't converted. So it was a good thing they were going home but what if they went home and they were still unconverted? Kind of takes some of the wind out of the sails, doesn't it? You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, some of you maybe have friends or family members who have COVID. We do. We have a family member who is in the hospital while we're here today. And you know, you miss your family members and you think, Oh, it'd be great, it'd be great if my family member could just come home from the hospital. And so we say, Lord, could you please send my family member home from the hospital? And, and so there comes that family member, comes home from the hospital, and you think, this is great, but there's still a problem, isn't there? He or she still has COVID. And you think, well, it's nice to have him or her home, but still got a big problem here. Well... For the people of Israel to go back home to the promised land, still unconverted. I mean, it's nice that they're home, but the problem isn't just out there, it's in here. They still have heart problems. And so God says, Daniel, I'm going to do something bigger than you even requested. And he mentions six things, doesn't he? In verse 24, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint the most holy place, the ESV translates it, but in the Hebrew, you could say the most holy one. 
If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, where does your mind go when you read those things? To Jesus Christ. You read that and you say, an end to transgression? To bring righteousness? And you read that and you say, oh, God's pointing Daniel to the ultimate hope, not just to the restoration of the land, but to the restoration of people's souls. That God says to Daniel, I'm going to do something bigger, greater than you ever imagined, Daniel. The day is coming when I'm going to put an end to sin, when I'm going to bring righteousness. And I believe that if we're going to have our hearts impacted by Daniel chapter 9, that we're not going to be so focused on charts as we are the heart of the issue. And I think it gets to Jesus Christ. Now, I realize some of you are curious, you know, what does this passage mean? I jokingly said to the preaching team, when I get to these verses, I'm just going to mumble. <laughs> and I am teasing. I have the responsibility to open it up for you as best I can. And I'm sure there's a whole lot here I don't get yet. But Daniel talks about 77s. The Hebrew word for week was the number seven. That makes sense, doesn't it? So 77, 70 weeks, each week representing a year, a week of years. And you start doing your math and you realize there's something going on here. First, he breaks these 77s into three parts. There, there's seven sevens. Numerically, that would be like 49 years. That's a moderate period of time. And it seems to be referring to the return of the exiles to the completion of the temple and they're established back in the land. So over a period of about 49 years, there's going to be this restoration of the people back in the homeland. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple. You know, the people are going to be back home. It's going to be a time of trouble, but there's going to be this moderate period of time when... I'm answering your prayers, Daniel. The people are going home. But then there's this longer period of time, 62 sevens. Mathematically, that's what, 434 years? So here's a bigger hunk of time. Now, no matter where you start, you end up with about 30 AD. Isn't that fascinating? So back here, hundreds of years BC, God's telling Daniel, there's going to be amazing things happen in 62 sevens, which takes us to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, we don't know for sure exactly when this time period started, so I don't want to speak, you know, as if I know exactly when it started and when it was completed, but it brings us to the era of Christ's ministry. So the end of this longer period of time is the time of Christ's ministry. And then there's this really short period of time of one seven, seven years. And halfway through that time, the anointed one is cut off. By the way, another word, another way to say anointed one would be Mashiach, Messiah, or Christ. The anointed one's going to be cut off. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you read this, and even though Daniel didn't have all the colors on the portrait, it was sketched out for him enough that he could look forward to God's promising us a greater answer than I asked him for. Yes, the people are going to go home, and the city's going to be rebuilt, and the temple's going to be rebuilt, even though it's going to be with a lot of trouble. And we read about that in the books like Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. If you want to read more of those, that period, you can read that. But then this long period that brings us to Christ, and then this mysterious seventh year that some people think has already happened and other people think is yet in the future. I think there's a lot of merit in thinking that it refers to the time of Christ and in the generation or so after Christ. That Christ was cut off. He was killed about halfway through uh, that time period, about three years. And then interestingly, in AD 70, a Roman general by the name of Titus Flavius came to Jerusalem. And like the Babylonians of old, he wanted to desecrate the temple of God. He wanted to show those people this would have been Herod's temple, the, the temple that was there in Jesus' day. In AD 70, about a generation after Christ went back to heaven, uh, there was this Roman general that came in and the Jews had been rebellious. And he wanted to show them that their God meant nothing to him. And so he sacrificed, are you ready? He sacrificed a pig on the altar 
in the temple in Jerusalem, a pig. And he was trying to make a statement to the Jewish people, your God means nothing to me. And then he tore down the temple, he tore down the city. And there was a desolation again upon the land because of the faithlessness of the people that they rejected Christ. And as Peter said later in his sermon, it was with evil hands that they killed Christ. You know, friends, we don't necessarily know for sure all the details of this prophecy. And I just want to say to you humbly that there are godly, educated scholars who take different positions. And I just want to encourage all of us that some of you might have pretty strong opinions about what Daniel 9 is referring to. Well, good for you. <laughs> but could you handle that with some humility? Because quite frankly, I think we'll find out one day, but I'm not sure we understand all the details now. But let me reassure you and reassure my own heart that even if we read passages like this and we say, I'm not sure I understand all the details, we can be reassured that God does. God has this all planned and he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows exactly when he's going to do it and he knows exactly how he's going to do it. Let me just give you uh, something to chew on here that might reassure your soul and calm your mind when you read this passage. In our Western way of doing life, we're very oriented to time, aren't we? You know, we're always looking at our phones to see what time it is. You know, we have calendars online and we're always figuring out time. And so you read a passage like this about 77 and, and, and you start thinking, okay, I need, okay, where's my calculator? I gotta get all this all worked out, you know? And, and we're thinking time, we're thinking charts. Let me just give you an illustration here. How the Jewish people looked at things very differently. The Jewish people, particular numbers meant things to them. You remember when uh, Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive? Remember Jesus' answer? He says, should I forgive seven times? And Jesus said, forgive, say it out loud with me, forgive 70 times seven. So what Jesus meant there was keep a track, keep hash marks, and when you get to 491, let the guy have it. Is that what Jesus meant? Of course not. In the Jewish way of thinking, seven, the number seven pictured something. It pictured, any of you know? It pictured perfection. Seven was perfect. Ten pictured completion. So we have perfection and completion. And so when Jesus told his followers, forgive 70 times seven, he wasn't saying, keep a bunch of hash marks till you get to 491. He's saying, forgive people completely. Forgive people perfectly. That's his point. He says, forgive people perfectly, com forgive them completely. And it's interesting that we find the very same kind of numbers in Daniel 9. When there's this promise of fulfillment, it's 70 times 7. It's perfection, it's completion. And even if we might not understand, okay, when does this time period start so I can figure out when it ends, maybe we need to just rest in the fact that God is speaking the language of his people and he's saying, my plan's perfect. My plan is complete. You can trust me. This is going to be a perfect, complete plan. I am going to carry out my grand plan of redemption. I'm going to send the anointed one, my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to make an end to sin. He's going to bring redemption. He's going to bring the new covenant, the new covenant. We're no longer wanting enough to say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know the Lord. They're going to have my law written on their hearts. I'm going to come and bring redemption to my people. And friends, there's even nuances here of jubilee, the year of freedom, that God's going to bring about the great restoration of all things. Friends, we're living in stressful times. There have been other stressful times. There have been seasons in history that are more stressful than what we have now. But as we live in times of stress and confusion, what should we as Christians do? How are we supposed to respond? 
Just right before the service, I was meditating on what I was going to teach you today from God's Word, and I had a memory come back of our old friend Jerry Bridges, and he was a dear friend. And I remember one evening he was standing in our kitchen, and he, he said to Gladine and me, he says, you know, the Christian life might be hard, but it's not complicated. <laughs> and I thought about Mr. Bridges saying that. You know, the Christian life might be hard, but it's not complicated. And when we're living through seasons of stress and confusion, and we want, our hearts sinfully want to be drawn toward coping mechanisms, you know what we ought to do? Maybe we ought to do what Daniel did. We read our Bibles. We, it's not complicated. Read our Bibles. And as we read the Bible, what should we look for? We look for the character of God. We look for the promises of God. And we find our hearts resting. We find our hearts resting, not in changing circumstances, but in our unchanging God. That he is great and he is gracious. And he has promised us that he's coming back. And so we read our Bibles, and that moves us, even as it moved Daniel, to pray. And we say, Heavenly Father, I read in the Bible that you are very great and you're very gracious. And I trust you. And Lord, would you come? Would you come back and make all the wrongs right? And as Paul said in the book of Romans, we groan. Yes, there's a biblical groaning. We groan as we live in this era between the gardens. This world that is not our home, yes, we groan. And yet we groan with faith, don't we? And we groan and we look forward. We set our eyes higher, we set our eyes farther, and we realize that God has a perfect, complete plan. And we go to the end of our Bibles, and what do we read? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so, Christian friends, as we go through seasons of stress and uncertainty, Christian life might be hard, but it's not complicated. We read our Bibles. Are you reading your Bible? Are you looking for the character of God? Are you looking for the promises of God in Jesus Christ? And we pray to the King who is our Father. And then we set our eyes on that promised completion that all things will be made new. And that stirs our hearts with fresh hope, doesn't it? Some of you are listening to, today, to me today and you're not converted yet. And I want to remind you that God has a perfect plan, a complete plan, and he will return. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to meet the God of the universe? Today is the day of salvation. Will you turn to him?